Now this morning I'd like to ask you to return with me to the Gospel of Luke to where we left off actually two weeks ago, uh, where we were at in the 16th chapter of Luke. If you have your Bibles, please turn there, Uh, especially as we come to the uh, first 13 verses. We touched on those two weeks ago, and and I'm going to ask you to forgive me because I I really do need to review the, the point of the parable that Jesus delivered in that passage in order to be able to make any sense of what we're going to find here beginning at verse 14. I promise I do not intend to re-preach this sermon, but I do need to kind of refresh our kind of collective memory, mainly because, first, that was a very difficult parable to understand. But second, in understanding that parable, it becomes the key to really unlocking the passage that we have before us this morning in verse 14. So be patient with me and follow with me carefully. What was that parable about, verses 1 through 13? Well, in verse 1, we find a steward who was caught by his master cooking the books. He was playing fast and loose with the master's business, and as a result, found himself in a position of actually being fired. Uh, and in that, in face and in, of, of, of his firing, what he did was he uh, then did something which on the surface appeared only to add to his, his corruption. He went to the creditors and he cut their bills down, ostensibly, as we read, to set up a future contract for a job with the creditors. That's what we read in verse 4. The big surprise, however, in this parable is that when we come to verse 8, the master finds out what the steward has done and he ends up praising him and by all accounts appears to restore him as his business manager. When you read that, are you confused? Is Jesus actually blessing corruption and double corruption? Well, if you remember from two weeks ago, the key to understanding this actually lies in the business practices of the day where a steward, a business manager of a master, would find his pay by receiving a certain percentage of any deals that were made on behalf of the master. And we looked at the uh, content of the deals uh, with, with grain and, and with the agricultural products. And given the economy of the day, the percentage in the parable that, 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 that the steward uses to cut from the contract actually matched his percentage of the take, his own pay. So in reality, what he was doing was two things. One, he was ensuring that the master would receive everything that was due to the master... And second, he was taking himself totally out of the equation. He was cutting his pay out of the deals. And in, in that moment, he was, he was returning to a position of service and servanthood. Understanding the economy of the day really helps understand the parable. And what we read is that, in other words, he was making sure that his service would return to what it should have been as a steward, where everything that he was doing was actually all about the master and not about him. No wonder the master then commended him. Wouldn't you like to have somebody working for you who is all about you and not about themselves? (laughs) What we see in that parable is the act of a broken and contrite heart and really an act of restitution on the part of of that servant 
Because he had let his position get the best of him. He had forgotten that as a steward he was serving a master. And instead, he had let his position go to his head and had started to act as if he was in charge of the business. Maybe not as a master, but certainly as an equal partner to the master. And that had to stop. And as the parable then ends in verse 13, we hear those words, you can only serve one master, not two. You can't serve God or mammon. And as you remember last time, I inferred the fact that mammon is really a a metaphor for yourself. You cannot serve God or yourself. So with this parable, Jesus is setting up the terms for discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And he's doing it for his disciples. You see that because they're the audience that begins this all in verse 1. And so that this is a a warning that going forward with Jesus and being a servant or a disciple of him, they would have to confront the temptation, the the, the, the all-too-common temptation to think of themselves as masters and lords as a result. And let's be honest, that is a temptation that we see all too often, especially when we witness influential Christian leaders implode under the weight of their own ego. Because it's become more about them than it has become about Jesus. They have allowed their calling, their position, their status, go to their head thinking, it's theirs. I think of that sometimes when I hear someone talk about their ministry as my church or, or, or my ministry. And I know I've said it myself and I'm humbled to think about it because it's in fact the master's. I don't want to make too much of it, but the temptation exists and the warning is there. You cannot serve God and yourself. You can only serve one. So in verses 1 through 13, Jesus has delivered this rather challenging and convicting parable of warning to his disciples of what it was going to mean in going forward with him. And if it had ended there, that would have been enough. I can imagine the disciples would have been able to say, Boy, thanks for the caution. We'll keep that in mind going forward as we follow you. But turning to verse 14, we find that that story, that parable, actually hit home on a completely different target than the disciples. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Now that, that story may have been intended for the disciples, that parable that Jesus delivered, but the first target that, that, that was hit were the Pharisees. For the disciples, it was a warning. Don't even try to mix business with God. Don't play fast and loose with his will. Don't seek to capitalize on his blessings. Do not use your service as an opportunity to exploit uh, your master or satisfy your ego. If you are going to be a disciple, know that service in the kingdom of God is not about you. It's all about him. But now, what if you already consider yourself to be a servant of God? As the Pharisees saw themselves. Suddenly this is not a warning. For the Pharisees, it becomes an indictment. And you get that from the reaction. They're squirming. They're squirming hard. As one translation says, they were sneering at Jesus. That's the way Luke writes it. They were scoffing. They were sneering at him. Do you know what a sneer is? It's it's that look you get from someone who thinks that they're smarter than you, better than you, wiser than you, and above you. It's the look that says, who do you think you are? 
I, I've practiced that look, and I, I've got it down, and I imagine that you do too as well. It's that sneer, and, and, and Luke gives a reason for that look. It says, because of their love for money and all that that money represented, their success, their status, their substance, who they really are. Now, what, what was it all about, their love of money, that would result in a sneer? Well, Norval Goldeneyes writes, he says, they regarded riches as the rightful reward of their faithful observance of the law. This allowed them to deride Jesus, who, in contrast with most of them, was poor. And he was followed by a small group of even poorer disciples. Didn't he realize that his poverty and all and that of his disciples proved that they were not honored by God in the same degree that they had been honored? Why, they were God's partners. Who is this upstart? Jesus. To somehow unveil the the greed of our souls. This, of course, is a basic flaw of dishonest stewardship, getting confused between the master's wealth and your own personal ego. And a deception that becomes play-acting, where the, where the servant plays dress-up in the master's clothing and expects to, others to, to believe that it actually fits them as they're walking around. And Jesus th- sees through all of this, and he lays out a charge. You are the ones, he says, who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Now, please, it is not that these people were, 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 were consciously bad and evil people. In fact, the, the Pharisees were fine and upstanding citizens, the type that you'd like to have as a neighbor. You would feel safe leaving your kids in their home because they were so well scrubbed. But while their lengthy prayers and their righteous deeds and their responsible lifestyle may have wowed people, there was something about it that literally nauseated God. It was detestable in his sight. That word detestable is something actually much stronger. Translated, literally, it means an abomination, something revolting, something repelling. Revolting! I like that term. (laughs) And you've got to wonder, what would stimulate such a severe reaction from God himself? According to Jesus, it's not a matter of appearances or activities. It's a matter of the heart. God knew their innovation. He knew that the greed that, 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 that painted the core of their lives, greed for power, for, 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 for money, for, for, for perks that they could take to themselves, and this greed would translate itself into a pride that they could parade before other people, create an impression that would justify themselves in the eyes of men. And to make matters worse, he knew that that inner rot had had affected severely the relationship that they had with God. In verse 16, he takes his case against them one step further. They are charged with hypocrisy. Not for their behavior in the eyes of humanity, but for their attempts to corrupt the truth, the word of God. Listen to verse 16, the law and the prophets. They were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the good news in the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Hold that particular phrase off to the side. We're going to talk about that in a second. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Now, this requires some degree of explanation. So let me unpack it. The word stroke that is there, uh, the least stroke of a pen, uh, it, it, it actually refers to a tiny little 
seraph, a, a, a dot and a tiny tail that was added to the, to the words or to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. If you ever looked at a Hebrew Bible, you will find those sort of markings. They're like little scribbles that, that occur all around the letters, and they're considered to be the jots and the tittles that you hear about in, in the New Testament. I think that they're called that in the King James, jots and tittles. They are tiny, and yet they are there to add vowel sounds to the words and can make all the difference in the meaning of a word. Here, Jesus says something powerful about the Word of God, that even down to the smallest line of a letter, the Scriptures have been chiseled in stone, and no amount of theological tinkering can erase its impact, and no amount of whiteout can erase its meaning or change its application. He says it right there, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law, be erased. The Pharisees, on the other hand, at heart, a heart that was open, on open display before God, actually sought to bend his word to, to fit their lifestyle and their agenda. They, 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 they made sure that they would throw their interpretation up onto the stone tablets of Scripture to see if maybe it would stick and, or make, make a dent or maybe make a little mark on there. But the marks were sure in stone They did everything in their power to pass off what was personal as something that was divine for their own convenience. Now you can picture the reaction. In my imagination, I see the sneers suddenly turning into protests. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. We believe in the Bible. We worship the Word. Why, we wouldn't even dream of tampering with the Word of God. But in fact, they had. And you notice that. There's no gap here between verses 17 and 18 because without skipping a beat, Jesus provides a single piece of evidence that would convict them. In verse 18, he makes a direct statement about divorce and remarriage. Just a very simple and a very direct statement. Now, why he chose that particular issue, divorce and remarriage, I'm really not sure. I really don't know. I do know that that little statement doesn't encompass the entire teaching on the issue, but he does have that one little statement. In ways, I wish he would have chosen maybe another, simply because that particular example touches so many wounds within a congregation. And I've got to believe that even in a congregation this size, that that issue has affected any number of people who have been affected in some way or another. And, and were I to focus on it, and would I, I would need to really tread with great care because I know how tender those wounds are. But here, Jesus simply makes a particular statement, and I have to believe that he did it knowing that within the circle of the Pharisees, it would hit home in a very specific way. Because it was possible that it was that one issue that had twist, they had used to twist to their own advantage and bend to their own convenience in their own lives. There were other issues that Jesus could have, and, and in fact did, use to to, to, to expose those who were listening to him because he knew their hearts. He has a way of doing that. He, he would use an example of greed in, in, the, in, 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 in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, where people were trying to find a way to get around from caring for their aged parents. And that was a specific issue. And, and he used other specific issues uh, where, where in, as it says in Mark 7, you set aside the commandment of God or you add to the commandment of God in order to be able to set up your own tradition. And I wonder, were Jesus to come here and deliver this statement today among us, what particular issue 
would exist in my life, in your life? What example would he use that where you have sought to cut some concessions? Maybe to be able to add a little bit and twist things around to your convenience because you feel like you might be in a position of being able to partner with the master and get away with it. I have to laugh. W.C. Fields, the, um, the comedian of the last century, you know, like, get away from me, kid, you bother me. That's, that's W.C. Fields. He was, he was renowned as, a, as an agnostic he, 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 and, a, and a critic of Christianity. But one day, and he was in his trailer preparing for uh, filming, and uh, somebody came in and found him reading the Bible. And they said, what are you doing that for? I thought you didn't believe it. And he says, I'm just looking for loopholes. I'm looking for loopholes. And I wonder... Where is it that you've been looking for loopholes with God? And if Jesus were coming to come and deliver this passage today, what example would he use in verse 18? Where you've, you've tried to add or change. Where you've, you, you've struggled, you've arm wrestled with God and his word to put it your way to make things convenient. What Jesus exposes here really is evidence of a power struggle. Back to verse 16. I mentioned that we'd go look at that. There you will find that extremely puzzling turn of phrase that has given translators fits. Trust me. There we read, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached, and and here's the phrase, everyone is forcing his way into it. You go to the commentaries and the New Testament scholars, they're constantly scratching their heads over how to translate this because the, 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 the grammar is, is so confusing here. A middle and an active voice, and, but a middle and a passive voice. And, and it really boils down to the definition of the word force and into. The verb force means to be pressed hard, to be pressurized, to be pounded violently. And, and given the voice of the verb, could be also translated this way. Anyone who finds their way into the kingdom of God will need to forcefully deal with the power or the, of its force. Do you catch that? You just, it, it, it's not just an easy slide into the kingdom of God. There is a, a conflict, a forceful conflict. A battle of wills, as it were. And the way it reads in the English, well, unfortunately it may sound like that we can force our way into the kingdom of God, where in fact, what we find is that when we find ourselves face to face with the kingdom of God, we do find ourselves in a power struggle, where the will of God is expressed clearly in the power of His words, and you can either attempt to force your will on it, to get it to conform to your agenda or allow its force to transform you according to his plan and his purpose for your life. It's a power struggle where you have the choice. There is a power struggle to faith and the question is, who in the end will rule supreme and be the master of your life? You cannot serve God and yourself. I love the way Chuck Swindoll puts it. He said, have you ever played a board game with a four-year-old? My oldest granddaughter is is three right now, uh, but she's already fulfilling this prophecy here. If so, if you've ever played with a a board game with a four-year-old, you know that they only want to follow the rules as long as they are winning. 
<laughs> as soon as the spinner says to dump out the cherries, or uh, the minute the card says to go back to the candy canes, the child becomes instantly inventive. I know, we just won't use the cards. Or, I get two spins. <laughs> and the Pharisees were just like that with the Bible. They wanted to be in the game, but they wanted to play it their own way and keep the rules that suited them, even expanding them dramatically. And to be honest, don't we do the same? (laughs) If we were to truly follow Jesus Christ, we do so by by, by accepting our rightful role where he is the master and we are his disciples. And as the disciples are servants who are dedicated to focus on the cross and not our own comfort, we have got to play by his rules and live by his standards even when no one else sees because that is where it counts the most. God sees the heart. And it takes us right back then to verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. It's not a choice between two separate personalities. It's a choice between yourself and the Lord. And only one of them really qualifies for the title of master. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. I don't know quite how this message or this particular word would come to convict the soul. I have to think that Jesus knows. He knows where, in fact, there has been that power struggle in your heart. And maybe now is the time for you to set it aside. Not forcing your will, but allowing his will to become the the strength of your life. So I'm going to ask you to join with me in a word of prayer, and there will be silence as we're beginning, simply to say, Holy Spirit, bring to heart and to mind those areas where I've become fast and loose with the kingdom. And I've stepped out of bounds. And, and I want to follow you. I want you to be my master. I want you to be my Lord. I, and I want to be your servant. I want to be used of you. I have to believe that the Holy Spirit will bring something to mind. And now is the time for you to be able to set it before him, saying, I surrender all. I surrender. I surrender. Would you pray with me?